Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist. I'm, uh, what am I? <laughs> a sports nutritionist. I'm a professor, university professor of about 17 years. And that's that's me right now. <laughs> this is Phil Stevens. I'm a power lifter. I dabble in Highland Games. I'm also a coach. I run Strength Guild. Has lifters anywhere from 5 to 65. Actually, I got a 73-year-old now. So. Wow, nice. You know, I've had students in the past, and I was one of them, and I don't want to be a hypocrite, but when we have students first start working with clients in sort of a structured setting, they panic if someone is like over 40 or 50 years old. You know, like, oh my God, what if he has a heart attack? I'm like, mm-hmm. he's not going to have a heart attack. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. It's just... It's just funny. Yeah, and as you get older, I mean, there's that real trend. Whether someone's in rehab or they're older, people are just more aggressive. You know, mm-hmm. with, with that. I mean, the likelihood of a coronary event I've heard is something like one in ten thousand. You yeah. know, for healthy people at least, and especially if somebody's been physically active. But I mean, I imagine the way you would treat a seventy-five-year-old uh, who who's been inactive most of his life or her life would be quite different from someone who comes to you and they've lifted for decades. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, so yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, honestly, it's just the the biggest thing. We do the same stuff. We just don't do as much. <laughs> you know, I mm-hmm. mean, that's really the biggest thing with aging that I see is like they can do the same exact thing. It's just recovery might take a little longer. Recovery, yeah. You know, maybe you know, warm up. Really, it longer I mean, warm up, maybe. You know, but I mean, yeah, and I see that even in myself. Like I can do the same thing I used to do at twenty. I just can't do it as often. <laughs> I yeah. can go just as hard. You know, you know I did um, – I kind of – we'll get into this after the break, everybody. We're just going to talk about achievements and training. Uh, but, yeah, I got rocked. I did a back day, and mm-hmm. I just hadn't done a combination of poles and rows and chins all on the same day. And I kind of came up to time to train again, and I'm like, I, I need another day. I don't know. I'm just older now. I don't know what to say. I am really beat up from that, you know. And, yeah. So – I think it's also a training maturity. I mean, is what I see too because I've got lifters now that are still in their late twenties and early thirties that are getting very strong, and we're having to back off on the amount of frequency, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, in, in total volume. Yeah, but you know. yeah, people say volume kills, and yeah, I mean, there's a certain requirement for it for hypertrophy and whatnot, but yeah. Yeah, total amount of tonnage starts to add up. <laughs> yeah, there's no point. doubt. There's no you know. doubt. Yeah, not enough, and you don't get optimal yeah. adaptation. But yeah, it's easy to overdo it, especially if you start getting too aggressive. You know. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, I have two little tidbits of mail here. Let me share these. This first one I just saw yesterday, and I think this is interesting stuff. This is pretty new here. Just a, it's about two, three months old. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, from Tucker. It's called Caffeine Consumption in Telomere Length in Men and Women 
um, of the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, or NHANES. So if you're not familiar with telomeres, everyone, let me just read you the little definition here. This is literally Wikipedia, so caution, but a telomere is a region of repetitive nucleotide sequences at each end of a chromosome, which protects the end of the chromosome from deterioration, etc. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the details. I think maybe the important thing to know is telomeres are sort of a marker or one of the ideas behind aging, right? So over time, as cells divide, the telomere ends become shorter. So it's almost like a winding down clock on a genetic level. Um, and they get replenished by an enzyme called a telomerase, uh, telomerase reverse transcriptase. I'm not going to bore you with details, but the idea is it's sort of a I, I probably get smacked by some of the biology people who listen, but it's sort of like um, uh, one of those hourglass winding down sand clocks, you know, kind of thing. So you don't want to see these get shorter necessarily. But anyway, so they looked at caffeine consumption in this. and So you might think that caffeine it revs up your metabolism and basically shortens your life. I mean, if you think about you only have so many heartbeats, for example, the way some people phrase it, but. So here's the background of this Tucker paper about caffeine and telomeres. Uh, the investigation evaluated the relationship between caffeine intake and coffee consumption and on uh, white blood cell telomere length, which is a biomarker of senescence or sort of aging and inability to keep fresh of cells. So they looked at 5,826 adults from the NHANES survey. It's a cross-sectional kind of study. So NHANES is how a lot of nutritionists, for example, among other groups, they look at, they keep their fingers on the pulse of what Americans are doing with activity and eating and all that sort of thing. So here's the results. Caffeine consumption was inversely related to telomere length. So as coffee consumption goes up, telomere length was, was shorter in those people. Again, sort of winding down more. You, I'm not sure I would want to see that. For each 100 milligrams of caffeine consumed, telomeres were 35.4 base pairs shorter. Now, this is why I'm bringing it to everyone's attention. Caffeine seems to shorten telomeres and in theory have some relationship with a, a shorter lifespan potentially. Um, however, coffee seemed to be the opposite. And presumably because of all the antioxidants, I mean, there's like 180 or more different compounds in coffee. Um, it says, let's see, if you ju just jump to the conclusions, results suggest caffeine consumption accounts for a shorter telomere in U.S. adults, independent of numerous covariates. So in other words, they corrected for lots of other things that might be involved here, uh, smoking and drinking and that kind of stuff. Um, whereas coffee intake predicted longer telomeres. So to me, this is another bit of evidence. And again, it's from Tucker et al. Uh, Nutrition Metabolism London, 2017. Uh, it's another bit of evidence that coffee may be a better choice than huge doses of pre-workout caffeine, right? I mean, I've always liked it because coffee uh, tends to improve carbohydrate metabolism and glycogen storage and things like that over time not over time not just acutely but over time whereas caffeine wouldn't do that so there's a lot of advantages coffee can help you store glycogen better be a better carbohydrate metabolizer metabolizer over time and now it's saying that it might have an opposite effect potentially i'm really painting with a broad brush here but potentially better for lifespan kinds of issues too so Coffee for the win. 
And, and again, I've had researchers say, Lowry, why don't you study something more interesting like the sublingual caffeine and you know, the gums? And, and I'm interested in caffeine gum and that sort of stuff or energy drinks, but there's a lot of good things about a good, strong cup of joe. You know, it's, it, it sounds like a hippie, but it's sort of that back-to-nature thing, and it's less processed. It's not just a, a single chemical extract. So uh, I don't know. Maybe coffee uh, better for lifespan. It's kind of interesting. This uh, next and only other one I have, uh, my wife Kelly sent to me. She's interested in a lot of psychology type things, of course, being a counselor, and I'm more interested in the biology stuff, but this is where they, they connect. Uh, this is from the New York Times. A traumatic experience can reshape your microbiome. So we talk about this all the time, it seems like, these days, with the bacteria in your large intestines, right, your bowel. Um, they're a big deal. They can influence your behavior. They can influence your body fatness. So you're, you really are um, a symbiote with l billions of other l little organisms in your gut. Uh, this is by Susie Nelson or Nielsen. Um, she starts off by saying uh, the whole gut brain connection or brain gut connection sounds a bit like something out of a science fiction story, right? Like how can the bacteria in your gut really affect your choices in life or your mood or your body fatness um, but this may be a case of science finally catching up to our different idioms and by idioms she means those sayings that people have that already I think point to a gut microbiome long before researchers started studying them specifically like you hear about a gut-wrenching car ride or you have a gut instinct about something or you have butterflies in your stomach so what they did was they wanted to see, was there any relationship between the kinds of bacteria in your large intestines and your history of trauma, traumatic psychological experiences uh, in life? So it says, recently a team of researchers found that our guts may harbor evidence of difficult life experiences many years after the fact. So this is crazy. I mean, imagine in our field, if this is related to body fatness uh, and not just uh, your mood and thinking, um, God, somebody could be post-traumatic stress disorder and you might be having a hell of a time getting them to lean down in the gym, for example, and never have thought that there would be a connection, right? They've had this very hard life and it's going to be more difficult for them because they've sort of set the stage with the wrong bacteria in their gut. It says, the study published last month in the journal Microbiome, the authors analyzed the microbiomes of a group of students with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, and if listeners, you're not familiar, I know some of you actually have IBS, there is that connection. They t people with IBS, not always, but there's a tendency to see people that are more high-strung or more anxious and that sort of thing. It says, the results were startling. Across the board, those in the IBS group were far more likely, more likely to exhibit anxiety and depression. Uh, they actually, it says they further divided the people with IBS in, into two groups. Those with a microbiome that was undistinguishable from healthy controls and those with noticeable differences from healthy people. They found that the subgroup with the different microbiome also had more history of early life trauma. So it's interesting stuff. Uh, and it says it's possible or even probable that the relationship isn't unidirectional. In other words, your experiences may change your gut bacteria, but then they may have a, a reverse feedback effect on your body comp or your behavior or other things. So wild stuff, right? It kind of yeah. lends some credence to people who have had hard, very stressful life experiences. 
and their health, right? Everybody, you, you know, you see somebody under a lot of stress and they kind of waste away and they lose weight and not in a good way and cortisol gets kicked up, they lose muscle mass. And But this isn't just hormonal. This is a, another mechanism, I guess. This is uh, interesting because I was just reading a paper on, uh, have you heard about the, <laughs> they're saying poop doping is going to be the big thing in cycling now. Did oh, you see my that? goodness, no. So basically this lady out of Connecticut, she's a PhD, went and studied the microbiome of elite like bicycle racers. And like only where is it at? Let me find the number here so I don't get it wrong. A small percentage of the population have the Prevotella bacteria in their guts, but a hundred percent of top racers have it. So what she did was <laughs> she she extracted her gut. I imagine she took some kind of a laxative a, or something. Yeah, a laxative or something and then had pretty much did a reverse enema um with somebody else's yeah. you know and uh then within weeks she was her tra- she was able to train 5 times a day this and that and uh really? so basically she took somebody else's microbiome and put it in her and, uh, you know, her, her recovery ability went up greatly, this and that. So they're saying this is going to be the next big thing in cycling. Like, they, they tested the microbiome. They have five or six things within elite racers that the average population doesn't have that lets them, it helps them, you know, digest and get everything out of their food. Right. <clears throat> so, well, based on recovery. a lot so. of the stuff that I've been reading, yeah, it's digestion, absorption, but it's even the chemicals that they, those bacteria might release into your body. And eventually your bloodstream, reach your muscles, your brain, your blood vessels, whatever, right? So I think they really need to tease out a lot of what are these, all of the different mechanisms by which the gut bacteria yeah. are influencing your your performance. I have never even thought, dude, about doping poop. <laughs> yep. So they're saying this is going to be the, you know, I'm seeing it all over the place now. Like I'm looking at cycling.com and it's on there. Like this is the next big thing. It's, so. Wow. Yeah. You yep. know, Mike Nelson has said before, you know, we give so many ideas for supplements. As soon as some supplement manufacturers get a hold, like the prebiotic people, right, they're going to yeah. they're going to say, oh, we'll we'll give pre and probiotics to try to encourage those particular bacteria you're talking about. Yeah. But well, and that's what she goes on to say is in here. She's hoping she can get, you know, with more study, they can learn more about this and people won't have to go the route she did. They can actually take something through their mouth. Yeah. Uh, I don't you know, know if that's going to be possible, though. I mean, a lot of the pre and probiotic stuff, I mean, you can influence the populations of the different bacteria mm-hmm. in your large intestines. But I, my understanding is fecal transplants are mm-hmm. more effective because they almost – Maybe clean well, slate you, you know, like reset you in a way that swallowing a pill and trying to encourage well, yeah. growth I mean, won't, you know. It's like the difference between going, you know, uh, taking a pill or going, you know, IV. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're going home. directly to the source. Yep. Nothing's going to die. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's a bit different for sure. So wow, yeah, because let's face it, for what uh, more than fifty years strength and muscle athletes they've really looked at hormones as Mm -hmm. the key to do things but obviously this is like a whole nother world that's not just taking more testosterone or growth hormone or whatever but but a particular bacteria wow yeah (laughs) 
So Poop I don't know. It, it's just, it says it boosts your ability. They got to break down fiber and fruit, short chain fatty acids. You know, all that are critical for athletes and blah 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 blah. So interesting. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. We're not we're not going to have a super long episode today. Uh, I I got to catch a flight here, but um, I wanted to thank a few people. Uh, Tabor uh, just sent us a donation. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Nathan, Brittany, Bradley. You guys help keep the lights on. I uh, Let me toss something out. I was listening to another podcast yesterday, and they made a very good point. They said, if you like podcasts, if you like niche markets that mass media don't reach, like Iron Radio does, uh, even if it's not us, right? I'm just talking about across the board. Consider supporting those shows. A lot of shows you use PayPal or Patreon. We use, just use PayPal on, at ironradio.org. But when you think about something like $1 a month or $4 a month, that's very, very low. It's sort of that old public television, public radio approach. Um, but consider that. Like, or an artist, you know, or a hobby you have. If they are listener-supported, think about putting your money where it matters. I mean, my wife and I are real big on supporting local businesses when we can. You know, the ma and pa places instead of the, the faceless corporate chains. And I know there's pros and cons to that approach, but, uh, you know, I've always had a soft spot for that. So think about that. And, again, that's just a, a random short list of some of our supporters uh, and donors. So thank you very much. And, again, listeners, we don't usually go on about this except to say thanks. We don't do big funds drives usually until, like, the holiday season every year. So we're not really hammering you on this stuff. Um, Anyway, so uh, thanks for that. Uh, let me get really quickly to iTunes reviews. I thought I could shoot just a, four or five of these mo most recent ones. So what are people saying about Iron Radio? And then we'll go to break, and then we'll talk about our training. This uh, first one, Enrique. All around a great podcast. They often talk about new science, answer listener questions, and the hosts are all really great. Well, that's nice. Thank you, Enrique. Uh, the next one, Huge Crackhead is his screen name. Love these guys. Always spelling out good factual information about lifting. Truly gained some solid knowledge from these folks. So also appreciated. What else do we have in the recent batch? Um, from uh, Brooke. Uh, the hosts highlight all different aspects of healthy living, especially fitness and nutrition. They offer some great insightful advice in an informative and inspirational way in this can't-miss podcast. That's really nice. Thank you, bro. Yeah. Uh, let me just offer one more from Ufda. Most informative podcast on nutrition and fitness that I've listened to. Uh, just what I was looking for. Entertaining, knowledgeable hosts that give great reviews and have excellent guests. So, cool stuff. And, I again, that's another way. If you don't have any uh, funds... <laughs> To support the show, an iTunes review really goes a long way. So let me just invite people to do that. Good, bad, or indifferent, right? But reviews are very helpful uh, for the show and to get the word out. And I have one last little thing along along these lines before we go to break. But uh, I was talking to Fortress on the phone last week, and he said uh, uh, a guy that works, uh, I, I don't know, it's like the, the front entrance way of the, the correctional facility where he works. He heard Rob talking. And he said, oh, my God, you're Fortress. You're from Iron Radio. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's funny. So you, you never know the, the reach of this kind of stuff after doing it for like 420 episodes in, in nine yeah. years, you know. So I walked into an Aldi. 
to go grocery shopping. Is. You're Phil Stevens. Like, yeah, that that's me. <laughs> I'm here to get chicken. <laughs> We're D minus class celebrities. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. <clears throat> All right. Well, again, we're going to have a shorter episode this week, but we're going to go to break. Uh, when we come back, we might have a qu question or two from listeners if there's any burning questions. We didn't cover them all last week. And then we're just going to shoot the shit about achievements in training. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everybody, we are back. I got a couple things I want to get, and then I got a question. First off, because we're talking achievements and training, I want to give a shout-out to Ty. He's part of the Strength Guild weightlifting team, and he went to Junior Nationals, and he took home a bunch of hardware. Ooh. So he came back with a uh, – went three for three on his snatches, but he got a bronze in snatch, bronze in clean and jerk, bronze total, and another medal for uh, best te technique. So 12-year-old. He's already cleaning, jerking uh, 143 pounds, I think is what it translates to. Nice but job. After kilos times. So we got some good young kids coming up. I have a bunch of them here. Darrell has a couple down at his place in Kansas City. and uh, So, yeah, we're, we're running hard on that. And Bill, then the other thing Bill, I want to say ask... is happy birthday to my son. He turns oh. two tomorrow. 
time is flying, man. Oh my god! So, I know. It's two. <laughs> two. Yeah, and he's already lifting. He is just out. Everybody loves him in the gym. Like anytime there's a squat, and I like I'm usually the person that has to judge depth. So I'll take a knee, and he runs over and takes a knee next to me and mimics me and yells, "Up, oh, you got this!" <laughs> a little two year old hollering for you. That's, that's awesome. So, uh, What's yeah. your stance, Phil? About you? I mean not two-year-olds, but like 12-year-olds, how hard do you push the um, percentage of one RM when they train? Is it just like technique focus, or do you do more, like do you put them on percentages and or even higher percentages? Oh, yeah, I mean, once they're, once they're technically sound, yeah, we push it. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll push it with them, especially with little meats coming up and stuff, but it's always usually... Like most of my young kids were pushing really hard on the uh, uh, the Olympic lifts, which is never like a grinding lift. If they miss, it's it's not because their eyes turn purple and they almost poop themselves. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a it's a speed lift, you know, and things like that. So I've got a lot of young lifters that are doing a Olympic weightlifting, and every now and again, twice a year or so, we'll we'll go for a max on their their more the squat bench deadlift type thing um but number one first is is getting technically sound with some of them it could take six months it could take a year you know so that's first is just getting the technique down and i battle with some parents because it's like well why isn't johnny going heavier when jimmy is and well jimmy's technique is darn near perfect and johnny's isn't yet and that's yeah. what we're working on is getting them to understand the process okay um you know, why isn't why isn't my kid going to the meet? Well, he has some work to do. You know, I want to get him technically sound first. Um, so after that, I mean, I think it's just as safe as anybody else. I mean, especially at that age. And and honestly, they make amazing progress. You know, we see those. When I have a lift of this 10 and I get them for life almost, it's it's neat seeing that they build that base as a as an adolescent and then they get into those teen those fun teen years and we've already got that base and then all of a sudden those hormones kick in and we skyrocket with progress right because we're we're past that technical stage at a, at a younger age they come into you know puberty technically sound and oh man the progress we can make in those years is is amazing if they've I already know. got that that technical yes. base and the training base down yeah, um, I, I really think that there are so maturational windows. I mean, I'm not a pediatrics kind of guy, but yeah. I really think you hit these windows of opportunity as a, oh. as a kid grows. And you can't just <clears throat> come back and try to mop that up when they're 19. You know? No. And so. that's what I got some little 11 and 12-year-olds that it's like we're getting very technically sound and we're making good progress right now. But it's like just give it a couple of years, buddy, and we're going to take off. You know? Yeah. And, you know, they might be at, at 11 or 12, they're a little chubby, this and that. But it's like, just give yourself a couple of years and you're going to lean out because things are going to kick in that you have no clue about and you're just going to take off. <laughs> so right. I'm not too worried about it with them, you know. Right. And it's like, you just keep eating and training hard and, and we'll be good, you know. Because, you know, you remember back in the day, um, a lot of health professionals, and I imagine there's still doctors that are around that are a little more ignorant about this stuff, but there was a lot of concern about, like, growth plates of long oh, yeah. and, Oh, you're going to cause some kind of shift in their epiphyseal plate, yes. and you're going to hurt them. You can't use any kind of load. Uh, but, again, a lot of that stuff has gone by the wayside. I, not completely. I mean, you're not going to be an idiot and, like you said, yes. nosebleed, purple face, a, a little nine-year-old. Yes. But, 
uh, yeah, especially I think a lot of the uh, neuromuscular stuff, coordination, uh, yeah, building that base. Think about how far, how much farther ahead they will be compared to today's youth. That yes. The, only their thumbs have coordination. I think you've said that before. Yes, exactly. If we can get through that, that's the big thing to me is if we can get through that technical stage before they hit their teens, oh, the progress, you know, then we're, we're ahead of the game. Because then a lot of times I'll get some 15, 16-year-olds, and now we got to take two years getting that done. And then they're 18. They missed this huge opportunity that these kids that started at 10, 11 did. You know, because they, they got that stage done before then, before they were just hormonally <laughs> exceptional, yeah. you know. Yep. So um, well, yeah, think that's about the, the fun part. Well, think about the Eastern Bloc countries or, you know, mm-hmm. some of those um, – tales you hear about recruiting kids when they're very young like they yeah. identify them and cultivate them for a, a, a lifetime those are the people who they just have such ridiculous talent you know yes. because they've they've lived it you know they've yeah. shaped i mean talk about your microbiome or your nervous system or your hormones or your soft tissues all of it just lining up yeah. in a with a goal, kind of. Yes, you know. but it, it never fails that I, I take videos of my kids and we'll put it up and then their parents will share it and there'll be five or six comments on there. Oh, you're, I would never do that with my kid. You're going to kill him and this and that. And it's like, no, no, I'm not. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's, but I mean, it's still very prevalent. People thinking that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do resistance training until a certain age. And it's, but my big things, it's, I stop fighting with these people usually, but I'll give my parents some some ammunition, but I mean, usually the same people saying that the kids shouldn't lift are also the first ones to throw their kids in contact sports. And it's like, you know, I'll just throw some numbers out there about the injury rates versus each other. And, you know, the, the injury rates in, in little league football and, and soccer are much higher than weightlifting, you know. Yeah, good point. So we're a much more controlled environment as long as you've got somebody watching form and things. That you're not going to be squatting and then have somebody tackle you while you do it. <laughs> right, impact. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, but... Uh, you know, that's what Mike Nelson always says about when they when parents fuss about, oh, creatine's a steroid. He'd be like, and mm-hmm. yet, you, yeah, you throw your kids into contact sports and they get their yeah. bell rung four or five times a season, and yeah. you're okay with that, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so we got one little kid that uh, he has a concussion he's dealing with from playing sports, and he's out for two weeks from anything, you know, and it's right. not from weightlifting. You know? No, right. Yep. So... Yeah. So you have a, did you have a couple of questions there, or? Uh... Yeah, I got another question here. The number one is from Anton. He said saturated fats. He heard on one of our episodes that it's not a cause of heart disease, and that cholesterol is not necessarily that bad. Can you explain this further, or point me to a study or two that are legit? Oh boy. Well, I would suggest you poke around on PubMed. Um, sometimes if you go to the National Library of Medicine, right, Medline, PubMed, you'll, you can find lots of studies, especially review studies. So if you were to type in blood lipids review or those sorts of things, because it, it can be confusing. Uh, I am not comfortable saying that your blood cholesterol levels have no impact on heart disease risk. Remember, there's good and bad cholesterol, for lack of a better way to say that. You have HDL, the high-density lipoproteins, uh, those are considered good. The higher the number, uh, the better. So if you have a slightly elevated or even moderately elevated total blood cholesterol, your HDLs are huge, like 70 or 80 uh, on the scale. 
that's high and much less of a concern if it's all LDL, the quote-unquote bad cholesterol, the low-density lipoproteins. But there's lots of other issues that are involved with it, uh, particle size and other things. Um, when you hear about saturated fats, uh, in my training, we were taught that back in 1969, two researchers, Brown and Goldstein, they won the Nobel Prize for saying, oh, the more saturated fat you eat, the higher your blood cholesterol, your serum cholesterol. Uh, since that time, more and more people have been sort of debating, you know, that all saturated fats are not the same. For example, you could find some papers that argue, not all, that the stearic acid, stearate is a saturated fat in beef, for example, uh, doesn't have much uh, of a connection with heart disease risk, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it, it's a very complicated issue that's sort of beyond the scope of iron radio, but you can also find some stuff about very low serum cholesterol levels being problematic uh, related to different mood disorders and whatnot and, and that kind of thing. One of the things that I think is clear, though, and what let me clarify what we've talked about on the show, is the amount of dietary cholesterol you eat which is not the same as thing as saturated fat, doesn't have much impact on your blood cholesterol levels, okay? So just recently, the Institute of Medicine and uh, all of the nutrition-recommending authorities finally have dropped this idea. Uh, for years, it was, if you want to reduce your heart disease risk, cut cholesterol in your diet as well as saturated fat. So they would want your cholesterol intake less than 300 milligrams per day, Notice I said milligrams. Cholesterol isn't measured like, like saturated fat, like a triglyceride or a fatty acid. So not grams, but 300 milligrams a day or less. They have dropped that because think about all the foods. Frankly, a lot of meats have similar, roughly similar levels of cholesterol. Uh, I think if you really had high blood cholesterol, you wouldn't be focusing on dietary cholesterol. I mean, shrimp. Shrimp is like a bodybuilding diet food. And it's got very, very little fat, but it does have a fair amount of cholesterol. So we've gotten away from this dietary cholesterol thing as a bad guy. And like I said, some people are even questioning whether how bad saturated fat is. Uh, I suspect it has something to do with genetic differences, microbiome differences, uh, that kind of thing. Um, some people sell supplements, actually, medium-chain triglycerides, MCTs. I think they're a great clean-burning calorie source. Uh, for various reasons I won't go into here, but a lot of those are like uh, lauric acid. Those are sat fat, but they're shorter uh, chain than the traditional dietary fats. So the degree of saturation and the chain length of a fatty acid uh, hugely affects uh, the health outcomes of, of a lot of this stuff. So again, I am not comfortable saying that your saturated fat intake has no impact on your blood cholesterol levels and therefore your risk of heart attack. Uh, but there are a lot of people in the fitness industry who push saturated fat for various reasons. Like I said, MCTs are uh, used as a fuel and a calorie source. Um, a certain amount of saturated fat is linked to uh, higher testosterone levels uh, and that kind of thing when you compare it to people on very low fat, high fiber diets. So uh, I would just suggest you, you, you poke around the literature as much as you can, get an unbiased view of it, because it's a, it's a complex issue, uh, and it's not enough for us just to say, you know, saturated fat is fine, don't worry about it. But also, I don't think it's something I would personally obsess over that much. I mean, for example, I just mentioned like the sat fat in beef stearate. Um, the, it, the fat around the edge of a steak or marbled into your burger and that sort of thing 
It's about 50-50 about saturated fat and monounsaturated fat. And monounsaturates are almost universally considered healthy um, from heart disease risk, diabetes risk, that kind of thing. So um, educate yourself as much as you can about dietary fats and cholesterol. It's a very complex topic. And I, again, Phil and I aren't gonna sit here and say, go eat as much saturated fat as you can. It'll make your testosterone so high you look like the cover of a magazine, you know. <laughs> um, but it's personally, uh, and again, it depends on your family history. My total cholesterol is not very high. It never really was. Like 160, 180 fluctuates in that kind of range. Anything under 200 milligrams percent for your total cholesterol, that's low. And in those people, I wouldn't worry about it. A lot of, again, genetic and how your liver functions with its different receptors and whatnot. But, Phil, I don't know what you think. I know you're, you don't, um, <coughs> you know, you're not a super low-fat kind of guy. No, and I think uh, you touched on one of the biggest things is people automatically hear, like, red meat, and they think 100% saturated fat. Yes. Yep. And it's just not true. And that's what they think it is. You know, any fat in beef, no. No, it's not. No. Yep. So... I mean, I guess I suppose if you're drinking bacon grease, like the bacon craze went a little crazy, and it's like, you know, yeah, bacon's delicious, but it's not the end-all, be-all of meats, you know. But uh, so, I mean, you can go a little crazy out there, but, I mean, we keep things pretty balanced, and I think that's the biggest thing is, yep, yep. you know, we eat a lot of meat, but we also eat a lot of avocados and olive oil and this and that, you know. It's it's having that varied diet. So I do think, um, uh, yeah, the low-fat era throughout the 80s and 90s i don't think it did a lot for america's health you know frankly. no so like when yeah. i was a little kid in the 70s we would have a vegetable and a meat and some kind of starch on our plate rice or bread mm -hmm. or pasta or something we ate and there was a lot less obesity then you know i think when you pull fat yeah. out of the people's diets too far you, uh, the food industry ends up replacing it with cheap and that's the key Yep. This is cheap for them. Cheap carbohydrates, refined carbs and sugars. Mm -hmm. And I think we're overloaded on that. It dries up your insulin. You're always in this high insulin state, and that leads to body fatness and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So um, practical tips, uh, I would suggest, and again, just consider this. I'm not uh, telling you to go do this, but see what your family history of cholesterol mm -hmm. is, your family history of heart attack and stroke you know, do you have more than one relative who had a heart attack or a stroke before they were 60 years old? You might want to be a little bit more careful because saturated fats in the diet, they can, in fact, raise your serum cholesterol. Yeah. Um, but, you know, everybody has to make their own distinction on that and where it fits in balance. So, uh, again, moderation and balance. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but it's so true with fats. So. And it's the same thing with the whole sodium argument. You know, I mean, that's one thing I have to teach people is like, do you have the average American walking around? probably gets more than enough but those of us that like watch our diet somewhat sometimes we need to add some you know yeah and the only time to take sweating. it away is if you you know if you're one of those people that has a family history of high high blood pressure and things like that but yeah they forget that it's it's i don't know it it is as well as saturated fat has gotten too bad of a name you know when it's actually a crucial you know element that we need yeah, especially, especially somebody that's training hard yes. and it's now Athlete. Now it's a hundred and some degrees outside, and you're losing buckets of water when you train. Uh, and salt you know. with it, yeah. So, no, I agree with that. There's a there's a senior um, orthopedist here in the area uh, down in Akron, and 
he will actually push that too, like literally, like a pinch of salt or some, you know, something yeah. added with Gatorade and and this and that to try to put back again. It's a population specificity issue, right? If somebody, like you said, they're sweating their butt off and losing quite a bit yeah. of salt, and especially if they train for two or three hours, yeah. yeah, they that's not the same thing as a guy sitting on his ass and living on um, salty processed canned food all day long. Yes. Exactly. And I was, you know, I was having this conversation with my nine year old daughter the other day who's now with, she has gymnastics. She started boxing and things like that. And it was like, well, hidden salt bad. Well, no, you just, you know, you need to add a little because we, we're not eating Doritos. Yeah. You know, we're having a baked potato and some vegetables and some meat and you just sweated a ton. So we need to put a little bit of that back, back in and explain to her that, you know, runners and things sometimes add salt to their water and things like that to keep their, their electrolytes and balance. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's talk about this past week. Um, and again, we don't have a, a ton of time today, but we wanted to get something out for everybody. So, um, training. Uh, how? What do you do in the gym? Maybe people can pick up some tidbits from what Phil Stevens himself oh. does in the gym, or you know, what did you learn? Anything that's achievement related to training? Yeah. No, I'm still in this process of learning how much I can do. And things like that, and it's it's mine is you know several fold. It's it's due to all the past uh, injuries and things like that, as well as age. And so a big thing for me has been learning that I can do, like we talked about earlier in the show, I can go just as hard. I just can't go as often. So, you know, pretty much I have one day now that is it's all my squatting and deadlifting in one day. And last Saturday. after the show, I walked in and, and did it. Everything was feeling kind of heavy, so uh, I posted a picture of what I did, um, just the board where I wrote it down. But you know, everything was feeling pretty heavy, so I stopped at maybe eighty percent. But I just did a ton, um, and so I changed plans. You know, the plan was to go a little heavier than that, but you know, the day wasn't having it. So it's not like oh, I'm just going to get mad and scratch the day. I did what I could, and uh, you know, just hit more good volume. Lots of sets of threes and twos. Um, so it's it's learning that. I'm still in this. Well, I think you're forever in this learning curve. But, right, yeah. Uh, you know, learning what's the best. And so I just went in and got a bunch in. Um, and then I walk away for a week. You know, and that that's what's working for me now. And like I said, that's starting to work for some of my uh, more elite clients is learning to uh, – just give more recovery time it's because there is a difference. I'm, I'm a big proponent in like as far as cheering people on and giving them accolades for their achievement. Like somebody hitting 90% for three, despite if they're a thousand pound squatter or 200 pound squatter, it's still impressive. And it's like, good job. But at a coaching level, there's a difference in between somebody that's a 900 pound squatter and a 300 pound squatter. Uh, that 900 pound squatter can't handle as much training as often because 900 pounds just, well, let's say 70% of 900, 630 or whatever it is that beats you up more than 210. Uh, even though it's the same percentage, you know, there's, there's a difference there. So, you know, it's learning that and, and backing some of these people off and giving more recovery time. And that's, I'm kind of weird because like the craze of late is let's see how often you can go and how heavy you can go. We're very much in this squat every day phase and things like that. 
and I think that's great to a point and you can do short stints of that like I'm I definitely push you know okay we're going to work your squad hard for five weeks and we're going to push a lot but then we need that back off time um, you can't do that all day every day uh, over the long term we can do short stints of that and okay now, so now we're going to back off and we're going to do one day a week and a little higher percentage a little higher intensity um, it's just finding that that sweet spot of recovery versus you know progress for the individual you know I have some people that they can they can go more often. That's the neat thing about a coach. It's not only learning. It's learning coaching for the individual. <laughs> you know, well, and everybody's true. different. So You know, as a screening tool, one of the things that I've sort of noticed is uh, there's a, a concept, uh, listeners, a lot of you are probably familiar with it, called somatotypes. And I think it gives you some clues into how frequent, how much volume you can apply to someone. But a somatotype would be like if you're a mesomorph, these are guys with like 19-inch necks, huge thick mm-hmm. necks. They're they're very heavily muscled. Sometimes they're they drift into a mesoendomorph, like they carry extra body fatness too. Mm-hmm. But some of these guys, they can, in my opinion, and this is you know only partly scientific, but they can handle more volume, you know, and you can hit them harder than someone who is an ectomorph. You know, they're thinner, they're more angular, mm-hmm. uh, they're just not built. They don't have the big joints. They're not built for doing high percentages uh, multiple times a week, like some of these mm-hmm. squat every day programs, you know. So the way that you're built, uh, I think, uh, is a neat concept, right? Are you oh, yeah. ectomorph? Are you thin and angular? Are you mesomorph, just jacked? And, you know, you know, we've all seen guys like that, like the construction worker, guys that gravitate into that. You know, they're, yeah. they're just thick, big joints, big yeah. everything. Or are you a mix? Uh, are you some? Do you have some endomorph, which is a little bit more rounder, higher body fat mixed into that? Mm-hmm. So it's fun to do this with students in class. You can apply a, a one to seven number in each of these things. So, like you, I might say, I'm high in the ectomorph uh, aspect. I'm like a, a six on the seven scale. Um, I'm maybe moderate on mesomorph, maybe a five, and then I'm very low personally on the endomorph scale. I'm not real round and pudgy looking, you know, but mm-hmm. people have different strengths in this. And I, you know, again, some of these power lifters that I look at, they're in that meso endomorph spectrum. They're like a heavily muscle mass, carry some extra fat. I would think mm-hmm. they can handle more volume, you know, but yeah, that's just. Well, and more intensity. I mean, it's just, you look at cross, it's like looking at horses. There's a difference between a Clydesdale and a freaking racehorse, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> you can hook a Clydesdale up to a wagon every day, a really heavy one, and have him pull it. He's built for it, you know. Yeah. And that's the same thing with coaching. Is one of the things I have to face is, you know, having somebody like that. You know, I got a Clydesdale walk in and tells me they want to be an ultra runner, and <laughs> that's great. That's your goal, but you're built for this. Yeah. Um, type of thing, and it's it's being very honest with them, and that's that's one thing. I've luckily reached this point where I, <laughs> I've kind of always been this way, but I'm very upfront and blatant about, eh, you know, we're going to do this because that's what you're built for and this madness you've, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't, I'm no BS and that's just the way it, it, I like it and that's the way it should be. And it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you in 90 days that we can make you stage ready when you're two years out. Yeah. Oh, you know, it, Bill, it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't. It, in so. fact, uh, in 
mental health, I've had discussions with my wife about this or in um, like in nutrition. Yeah, you want to be supportive. And early on, I would really have to force myself to with, with the tough love. You know, like yeah. think about a doctor. At no point yeah. does he want to say, Mr. Smith, you have malignant melanoma. You yep. know, that's not a diagnosis you want to pass down to someone. And yet yeah. it's the it's the reality of the situation. And it's not helpful for him to sugarcoat that. Yes, exactly. You know, I and mean, that's it, an extreme like, example, but you get my point. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's the same thing. It's like people talk about doctors with bad bedside manner. I might be a coach that they say I have bad bedside manner because I'll just be blatantly honest with you. Like, no, you suck, dude. It's time to get better. <laughs> you right? know? Yeah. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But it's tough love. But, like, I mean, it's, it's better yeah. for everybody, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's like, you know, if you want to be good, we got a lot of work to do, and that's okay. Yeah, you you're can still get supportive, there. right? It's not like you know, you're, yeah. just, you're being I will dead. help you get there. I'm just going to tell you right now on the uh, on the great to suck scale, you suck. So <laughs> let's get to work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll slowly climb that ladder. Right, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, my training is fairly mundane right now. I, I'm a long way out from a competition, and I've become – mature enough to know that you can only push like competition training so long without burning out so i get in these idling phases where it's just okay i'm just going to push it as hard as i need to to slowly progress because i can't go into meat mode training all the time yeah. all year long yeah. it just doesn't work for me anymore i think I, I was able to get away with that some at a at a younger age and a uh when I wasn't as strong, but now it's like I go through these phases and it's like, okay, now I'm three months out. It's time to go there, you know? Right. And I can push that for twelve weeks. Um, you know, and you then once back off again. Yeah, you once said, uh, in order to peak, there has to be a valley on either side. Yeah. You know, you know, so it's good. It's a good metaphor. It's it's like any. You don't see Usain Bolt going out and trying to beat beat the ten second number on every run all year long. You know, they slowly ramp things up. You just can't handle that. No, if, and you know, the magazines, it, especially bodybuilding magazines, I don't know if powerlifting ones are as bad, or maybe I'm being an old-timer even mentioning magazines at all, but websites and magazines often, they're so focused on the hyperbole and the exaggeration of redline and, and you push <laughs> it over the, you know, and you can't do that all the time, and a smart no. person wouldn't want to. No, and that's like I have to explain that to to clients. It's like if if that's what worked, we'd just do a meet every weekend. That's literally what we do, and we'd all progress forever and have fun. But it just doesn't work that way, you know. Basically, I'm trying to raise up your baseline. Is what we're you know your your average day. We're yeah, trying to make yeah. that better. Yeah. Um. And if we can make that better, then your peak days are going to be better, because your baseline's just better. So. Right. Um. And that's the same thing. Like it's it's a learning experience of like I never change anything. If somebody has one bad day, eh, it happens. Now, if we start stacking bad days in a row, let's say for two or three weeks now, the same person has had a bad squat day. Well, maybe we need to start addressing something. Let's look into it. What's your life like? What's your you know? Do we need to address training? Do we need to address sleep nutrition? One bad day happens to everybody all the time. Now, consistently bad days, now we're looking at an issue probably. That's good. Um, it's that's it's good not getting upset over one bad day. Yeah. When, um, I, when I log, I still do this. I, I just monitor two things I boiled it down to over the years. One, motivation to train, like on a seven scale, and my appetite. And what yeah. I do is if it's down for a day or two, all right, I, I'll keep an eye on it. But 
I'll put little trend arrows up or down next to my little numbers in my training log. And if my hunger, my appetite's usually like a, a six out of seven and my motivation is a five or a six out of seven. And lately, repeatedly, it's been two mm-hmm. uh, for more, like a week straight or more. Then I start to wonder, what am I doing to myself? Is it work? Is it sleep? Like, yeah. what's what's the trend? Yeah. yeah so. So, well, we better call it. You got a flight to catch, and I got a gym to get to. Yeah, I so. do. All right. We'll see everybody next time. All right, week. guys. See you later. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, Lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at Phil's hall of iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training Fortress's hall has what you're looking for There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.